Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off that we do for Adventure Rider Radio about motorcycle travel. On this episode of Raw, what bugs you? All that and more coming up. But before we get going, I want to give a shout-out to a couple of people or a few people that have helped the show incredibly vast this past month with support of $50 or more. Here we go. Frederick Schriller, Candice Hartley, James Wilday, Doug Jordan, Andrew Wong, Ray Nines, Greg Hale, and David Gowen. Thank you all very much. That has made a huge difference to us this month. It's just been absolutely great. Hey, and and we really, really appreciate anybody who supports the show in any capacity, any amount. But don't think that just because somebody else is doing it that you don't need to do it. We need your support for Adventure Rider Radio and Raw as well. And anything $50 or more gets your name read out on the show like this, our way of just saying thank you. Um, also some stickers as well. That goes out with most most uh, support. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker, at least one sticker for your pannier toolbox, whatever you want. And we would love your monthly support on our Patreon account, which allows us to count on that uh, every month. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Now, we have some great topics coming up for you. I want to remind you that um, you can be a part of Raw, too, by sending us your questions and ideas for topics. That's where you've heard us talk about people who have sent in a question or something. This is what it's from. Again, back to our website. Click on Raw Questions under the, the Raw banner. You'll find that if you search around for Raw on the website. So coming up today, we're talking about what bugs you. We talk about bugs and, well, in particular, bugs that bite because <laughs> those are the ones you worry about. And this raw travel panel have experienced many bugs on the road and, of course, at home as well. So we're going to talk about those things. And, well, we're also going to take a stab at justifying motorcycle travel for the environment or and the environment. Did we pull it off? Well, you be the judge. Here we go. ARR Raw for September 2019. From the Canoe S Media Studio, rolling studio actually, stopping along the side of a country road in Ontario, Canada to do this recording with the fall colors beginning to change in the sea of maple trees around us. It is September 2019 and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel and anything else that crosses our minds, completely unscripted, raw and personal. My name is Jim Martin and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my esteemed regular Overland co-host, but first... I want to say that this episode is brought to you in part by freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations and and home of the brand new adventure space, which is a place to stay, ride and explore and ride the surrounding green land, green lanes rather, um, that are in their area in the UK. So that's kind of cool. That's something that's directed right at um, us riders anyway, if you're in the UK. So I'm going to jump right in with Sam Manicom because Sam is on tour Again, in the U.S. <laughs> Sam, how's the tour going? And where are you? Um, I'm in El Paso, and the tour is going absolutely fantastic. Can I drop one or two names? Would that be all right? Because I'm receiving some amazing hospitality as I travel. Um, I owe a big thanks to um, Al and Julie, Jesse, and um, Chris, um, because I stayed with them in Phoenix, and Al had been storing my bike for me, and... Um, spent a fair bit of his time with me getting the bike all set up for this tour so um, a big thumbs up to them for um, making me so welcome and their and their help with this um, and I've just been staying with um, some other friends Hunter and Suzanne in Bisbee Arizona which I'd never been to 
and I'm absolutely blown away with how beautiful it is there. I've arrived at just the right time because um, they've had um, some fairly heavy rains over the last week or so. And so this rolling um, landscape with mountains sticking up all over the place, it's lush and it's green and it's it's just um, fantastic. And they showed me around Bismi and um, then um, went up into Tombstone. Hunter is uh, one of the guides for the silver mine there. And so um, it was brilliant fun walking around Tombstone because they know everybody. So introducing me to the various cowboys and gun um, fighters and the musicians and the actors and actresses and all of that sort of stuff. So it's uh, it's been brilliant fun. I linked up with a friend, um, Dan, and he and I rode um, partway from Bisbee to El Paso together. Um, it was a bit lickety split. I was up at five this morning to get here in time. Um, but um, El Paso is great. Um, 31 degrees Celsius, so what's that, 89 Fahrenheit. And yeah, so far so good. Did a presentation at GoAZ in um, Phoenix. And um, by the time this comes out, I'll have been in um, at BMW in um, North Dallas and uh, then rolling on with the next venue. So yeah, more on that later. But it's, it's absolutely brilliant. I'm having a ball. And my bike, my F800, it is just a dream to ride. It's a real mile muncher. Um, a lot of fun. Wow, that sounds like a more vacation than work. I was expecting to hear a little bit more work in there, Sam. Well, from here onwards, it gets um, hopping from one venue to the other at a fairly um, lickety-split rate. Um, so, yeah, it'll be more work. But that's fine. I get all the lovely riding in between, and that's just such a bonus. Um, I've never been to the southern USA before, so um, everything I'm seeing, even if I'm in a hurry, um, is fantastic. The landscapes down here, just amazing. And going past, you know, historic sites there where Geronimo um, surrendered and that sort of thing, just being able to picture what it would have been like for him a little bit um, to um, put himself in incarceration at, at that one particular spot and so on. I feel like I'm riding through living history and it's uh, it's lovely. Wow, it certainly sounds good. We, we also have Grant Johnson, who, who I, I, I thought, Grant, I thought you were supposed to be in the mountains, but, you know, I just talked to you a few minutes ago, and it turns out that you're not in the mountains. You're just, you're just at your boring old home. Yeah, I'm, and I'm quite bummed by it, actually. We had a change in plans here that we had to make. Um, the original plan was to be in the mountains in British Columbia doing some riding, off-road riding, setting up for next year's hum in British Columbia. We're not letting anybody know what the name of it's going to be because that would give a hint where it is. So you just have to say, hum, British Columbia. And I'm getting in some great riding. Going to be out all next week doing some more off-road riding and uh, just checking out locations. We've got some beautiful spots. The mountains in the area are fantastic. We've got great riding, really wide range of rides and different levels of difficulty for the hum, which, of course, is the whole point of the hum. And... uh, it's one of those, anybody can ride it, and you can ride whatever kind of bike you want as long as it's dual sport or an adventure bike. Um, but basically, I'm having a good time. It's kind of like uh, Sam. He's out there enjoying himself, and yeah, next week I will be too. Wow. I'm looking forward to it again. That sounds really good. So, so where is it? Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> no. <laughs> Shirley, Hardy, Rex, and Brian Rex are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. First thing in the morning, and and I think fending off sort of the the last little bit of, of winter. Shirley, Brian, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Yes, I've been out riding too. I'm uh, preparing for a, a ride of um, up to Canberra from Melbourne and uh, others coming from all over the country. So. 
I've got to uh, help escort over 420 riders from Melbourne around the coast up into the mountains, uh, across snowfields, which, well, last week when we re-rode the route, there was uh, no snow up there, but uh, over the last couple of days, there has been a, a bit of snow falling. And when we rode this route a couple of years ago, um, we went through a snowstorm, escorting about 300 riders, and not one rider fell off. So I thought we did a really good job. But um, this year is uh, commemorating the loss of one of the riders that went on that ride with us, uh, who was cleaned up by a drunken, drugged driver speeding, and um, his family hopefully will ride with us uh, in uh, on Friday. We leave. Uh, and uh, we will make our way to Canberra. We will meet over 2,400 other riders uh, before uh, making our own way back home through the mountains. And hopefully in the spring weather, we will have a lovely time, blue skies, crisp, clear air, and really enjoy the high country of Australia. What's it like with the 2,400 riders going by? I mean, how long does that take that group to pass? Well, we uh, we uh, arrange to have a green light corridor. All the, the traffic stops as we ride through right down the um, main Northbourne Avenue of Canberra, which is the main street around our Parliament House, and then up to Memorials uh, on the lakeside at Canberra. And in one spot, we can get. I think last time we had over seventeen hundred riders. And we, one spot took 12 minutes to get all those riders hmm. through one spot, which is pretty good. The, really. the police in um, in the ACT, our capital territory, do a really good job manning all the intersections so everyone gets through. They block off the main part of the highway for about 20 minutes, half an hour, so everyone can line up. So we're all lined up and then off we go and then we get to the memorial and try and find a little spot to put the bike and then there's a, a service, which this year will include a, a memorial service to Vic Kostuik, who was killed on last year's ride, and to all police officers who have fallen while serving. It's a, it's a very emotional ride and it will be even more so this year because of the loss last year. But it's quite amazing to see so many people um, getting out and, and riding. So the purpose of the ride is also for rider safety. So, Well, well on that on that point, oh, I could probably announce it here but because uh, this show will go to air after the announcement, but um, I, myself and another guy started this ride 10 years ago. It's the 10th anniversary of the ride. Um, but we've used it to um, lobby governments and all the rest of it, and the federal government will announce a... Um, uh, a, a quite a substantial money package going to motorcycle rider safety campaigns and uh, a research and analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might include roadside furniture, um, runoffs, you know, um, uh, things that can make life safer on our roads for motorcycling. So, yeah, it's a big ride, but um, we use our influence as well to try and um, make things a little bit better for riders that all ride across Australia. Well, Graham Field is also on the road. And uh, Graham, are you in Bosnia? Is that where you are? And what are you doing there? Uh, I'm in Bosnia, trying to stay awake. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, well, I'm sort of on this uh, spontaneous little autumn tour. I'm going to the Horizons Unlimited uh, um, event in Italy 
which is this weekend. It will have gone by the time the show's aired. And then I'm doing some other shows, but I'll, I'll, I'll wait till plugs before I do that. But basically, just, uh, yeah, it was just, I didn't really intend to do this, but I just uh, got on the KLR and thought, well, you know, summer's nearly over, autumn started, i going to go for a ride. And the last two summers have really been quite fast riding summers with the Thruxton and what have you. And it's so lovely doing 40, 50 miles an hour again on the KLR. And what a wonderful, diverse bike it is. And I've been riding through Albania and Montenegro and off-road. And it just it just switches. It's incredible. You're riding it on dirt roads and you're just coping with it fine. And then you the tarmac starts and you lean into the corners again. And I'm just in love with it all over again. I, I'd sort of forgotten how much fun they were. So, uh, yeah, reconsidering a KLR tattoo now. <laughs> is this the KLR that you rebuilt? I think you, you did the engine or something on it? No, this is actually a, di- a different one. <laughs> it was a spontaneous buy some years ago. It's an, a US spec, which are very rare this side of the Atlantic. It's because the US spec has like a temperature gauge and a rev counter, worse brakes. But uh, generally, it's a better model than the European model, a bigger tank. And um, and it would sit in the garage in, the, in Bulgaria in the shed doing nothing for a couple of years. And I put the battery on it, it started right up, uh, unblocked the, the jets in the car. And I've been riding up and down. It's the one I started up, you know, on the on the show a couple of months oh, ago. Right, with right, the right. Three, it's right. got a, a bastard of a pop back through the exhaust. And I've been going through all these tunnels today, going downhill through these little tunnels. It's a bop, 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 bop. <laughs> Uh, but I really enjoy riding it. And it's like I say, I'm only plodding along. It's not using a fraction of the oil of the last one. And uh, and and actually, it's been the best ride that I've had this summer. I haven't had the most successful trips this summer. And been doing some beautiful roads I haven't done before. It turns out some I have done before, but I didn't know I'd done them before until I got to the end. I thought, hang on a minute. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Albania is beautiful. Montenegro is fantastic. Just got into Bosnia today, um, which is fine. But unfortunately, I've had better just before. So, uh, but um, I my, I'm still east of uh, Sarajevo, so I've still got plenty of Bosnia to go tomorrow. And uh, just really enjoying doing the back roads and taking it easier and watching the, the autumn colours begin to appear as well. Graham, uh, just like um, the other one, you had to be followed by the Exxon Valdez, didn't you? Did yeah. You back to England. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and and I the thing is, you do your little test rides, and it went, which seemed fine, and then you do your first three hours, as was the case with the last bike on the last trip, and after three hours, you can't see the oil in the looking glass anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. <laughs> and so this one, I was particularly nervous, and uh, and I've been yeah. checking it every morning, and I just checked it. Uh, I, I got in, checked in about five o'clock this afternoon, so I've had a few hours to kill before we started the show. And I just checked it again today. I've been checking it every day. And it is still, it's used a little bit, but it is maybe a quarter of a litre in a thousand miles. So that's yeah. perfectly acceptable. And uh, so it's uh, it's not using much oil. But then again, I'm not really spanking it very hard. I mean, it's, it's having a bit of abuse off-road, but... Um, no, it's, yeah. it's going great, and it's wonderful not to uh, – to, well, I do smell the burning oil because a lot of the cars are. And as soon as I smell burning oil or see that white smoke, is that me? Is that me? No, it's not. Graham, in Bosnia, are there still lots of warnings about landmines and all of that sort of stuff, or is it um, pretty downplayed now? 
I only got in this afternoon, crossed over from Montenegro this afternoon. Well, probably lunchtime, yeah. Um, and it's been, although it's been pretty green roads, uh, I haven't really gone to, uh, I'm going to see a lot more of it tomorrow. So I was here in, oh, 2006, and there were lots of signs then. But uh, I haven't seen any this time, but I haven't really been that far off the, off the main drag this time. Yeah, Berger and I were there about, um, I don't know, three or four years ago, and um, there were lots of warning signs around, and particularly around um, semi-derelict buildings, you know, just do not enter these, they're probably um, booby traps and all of that sort of stuff. Um, takes a long time to clear up after a war like that, doesn't it? Well, uh, yesterday was the weird, sorry if I'm <laughs> dominating the introduction here, but um, yesterday I, I, I came up from through a national park in northern Montenegro and my Google Maps has said I could cross the border and I got, to, it was just dirt road and I went up and up and up and then the road just ended and there was a rock and it was painted white and it said MNE on it, which are the initials for Montenegro and an arrow. And there is nothing. There is just a meadow. It looks like a tractor has gone through the meadow. That is the extent of the track. Two compressed pieces of grass. And I'm, I'm just edging forward. And on my Google Maps, I'm crossing a border into, uh, uh, out, of, out of Albania into, into Montenegro. I thought, well, well, this is it. So I just started going down this through this field. And then it crossed a little stream. And then it bumped up. And uh, so I'm going super slow in first and second, keep stopping to check. And it, the road's just, well, the road, the track is just zigzagging. And um, so I'm just going, it's downhill, and I'm just sort of going down there. And the bike's getting super hot at this speed. And then it died. And then it wanted to start. I said, oh, shh. So I am freewheeling down this track, like I'm silently trying to enter a country illegally. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and then I had a river crossing, so freewheeling through a river crossing. And then then there was this shepherd with his goats, the dogs barking like hell and uh, trying to get at my legs. And eventually there was no more decline and it leveled out and the bike stopped. So I thought, well, I'm definitely Montenegro. There isn't a sign. There wasn't a fence. There was nothing, no sign of immigration, customs, anybody apart from this uh, inbred shepherd with his dog and his goats. And uh, so I was like, please, please start. And I pressed the start button and the engine had called a bit by now. And it started. And I plodded on through over like fallen trees and down rocks. And eventually I saw this house on the hill and that gave me hope. And then the track got a little bit more defined and slowly got better and, and turned to proper dirt road and then eventually to tarmac. So I'm in Montenegro. I haven't seen a border patrol or anything. So I was in the country without any announcing whatsoever. It was very exhilarating because I've always wondered, you know, because roads inevitably lead you to border posts. And I often think, you know, like Iran holding a British passport is very hard to get into. And I think, yeah, it's a big country. It's got a lot of, a lot of borderline. Surely it can't all be guarded. I bet if you really wanted, you could just, you know, sneak in and that's what i did with montenegro yesterday i snuck in <laughs> so what did you bring so, into the country illegally nothing really just a bit of um, just a bit of bulgarian salami that was about the limit of it i think <laughs> oh you better hope they don't catch you with that <laughs> i've eaten it now oh, you're, you're good <laughs> gonna have to put me in a cell and wait <laughs> <laughs> Well, last time we were there, Shirley, there was um, we were pulled up by uh, the Kaifel forces, weren't we? Yeah. 
Yeah. They kept saying, why are you here? Are you here? Said, we're tourists. And they, tourists. Was, like, this was in 2003. There were no tourists. Just us on the bike going through. They thought we were crazy. And the signs were everywhere. The food, Sam, you know, like, um, uh, do not get off the road. And we were warned, actually, do not walk into the road to have a wee, you know, and sort mm. of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, today's and episode. And how are you going to go when you try and get out? Sorry, sorry, Jim. Well, I'm intrigued now about this illegal border crossing. Well, that that was yesterday. So today I had to leave, and I had put a couple of things on the Rise Unlimited Facebook page. No one sort of said whether it was well, no one else had done it. But um, uh, anyway, I was in a little border crossing, and luckily, what there was only a little line of cars in front of me, and while I was there, two huge buses pulled up level with me, and the guides got out the buses with mountains of passports, and so the the sole um, immigration and customs person in the little booth was inundated with yelling bus drivers and, and huge piles of passports. So he just glanced and waved me through. And I said, like, yeah. And then, so then I'm, now I'm officially in Bosnia. So everything's good now. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well, today's episode of Raw is called What Bugs You? Stories and maybe some tips and information about creepy biting insects that you may find on the road. And Sam, you you must have you must have at least encountered bed bugs. Oh, absolutely, um, and quite a few places because I'm staying in holes. Um, budget matters, and you know you can go into some places, and of course you always ask to see the room, and can, does the shower work, and actually try the shower, and all of those sorts of things. Um, but um, some of the places we stayed in. You could see that there were bed bugs because there were nice bloody splatters around um, the edge of the bed where it matched up against the wall. And uh, you know, you've got a, a choice. Do I go for another cheap dive, which is probably exactly the same, or do I just stick with this one? And this is where we would use um, our ground sheet. But um, yeah, I mean, but you get bed bugs in uh, nicer hotels too. And as people, more and more people travel, then people are carrying the bed bugs with them. So they're depositing them even in, in nicer hotels. Um, so you have to watch out because they're nasty little critters. They they really bite and they blood suck and they carry disease and all of the rest of it. And they can last a long time as well. They can they can live a long oh, they, time with no food. Yeah, no, absolutely. Until you come along. Yeah, um, I mean, if they get into your bags and stuff, you can take them somewhere else easily, as you said, and yep. and they'll live through that. Oh, when we were in Sudan, um, we the only hotel in this particular town that had off road parking for the bikes and behind a locked gate. You could see the bed bug splatters on the walls, and we thought, oh, "What are we going to do?" But there was um, a sort of a porch area, and we rolled the mattresses up and left those inside, and dragged the beds outside, and um, just slept on those with our sleeping bags, sleeping mats, and that was fine because we left the bugs behind in the room. Um, but other than that, we just put our ground sheets on, on the beds and wrapped them up the walls and down the sides of the bed, um, so the bugs are pretty much contained, and they've they've never bothered us. Um, so it's a simple thing. That's why we always have a non-crinkly ground sheet, because then you can put it on your bed and um, get a good night's sleep still. You, they've never bothered you? Like you've never been bitten? No, never have. Wow. So that's... Uh, no, never have. Maybe it's not as big of a concern as long as you take the precautions. I mean, I've, I've, never, well, I've never been bitten either by bed bugs, but I have had other things. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, Berg, it tends to be the one that gets munched on first. Um and when we're in, in places, where, for example, we're camping and um, the mosquitoes inevitably get in the tent. Berg has such, got such sharp reactions, she can literally reach up and go splat. And 
I, I've almost never seen her miss a mosquito. Um, so the inside of our tent looks like a war zone, but um, yeah, um, I'm quite happy about that. I've never been bitten by bed bugs, and um, we have stayed in some salubrious establishments that probably were um, candidates for bed bugs. But we stayed in a um, a place in in Prague that I kept saying to Brian, "This room is full of bugs." No, it's not. He kept telling me. But when he'd go to sleep and I'd turn my torch on to read, I was just about carried out the window by the bugs that appeared by torchlight. And I think the third night we were there, he turned his torch on in the middle of the night and boom, they went to his side of the room. Have no idea what they were, but they were ghastly. And there was squillions of them. Is and you couldn't see but Yeah. Mm. And they didn't they weren't attracted by the big light. Why, I don't know. So if you had the room lit up with the normal light, it wasn't a problem. As soon as you put the torch light on, oh, let's go and see what she's doing. <laughs> And they were pretty ghastly. And I still to this day don't know what they were, but in the end you just couldn't read. You just had to lie there awake and try and go to sleep naturally without reading for fear of being carried out of the window. We've done things like at Sam has too. You know, we've, we've been in the rooms which look a little bit dubious, so you might get the sleeping bag liner out and sleep in the sleeping bag liner or, um, you know, keep your thermals on or whatever it is, remember? Yeah. Somewhere down in uh, South America we did that a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah, but midges, Cheryl? Oh, midges. I don't know um, what you call them in your hemisphere. We call them midges or sand flies, and you don't see them, and you really don't feel them bite until about an hour later, and then you are likely to scratch yourself to death. They are just appalling, and they don't worry, Brian, and they just come looking for me. Just, just, just a little story. We have a friend. I won't mention her name, but her and her husband um, do a lot of boating and yachting and stuff like that. And she felt the urge to go to the toilet in a mangrove swamp and uh, exposed everything and um, was bitten in places where women don't want to be bit by midges, which is um, was, was uh, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> She said slightly more than ouch. Well, well, that's when you're the most vulnerable too. When you have to go to the washroom, when you get bugs, whether it's mosquitoes or, or noceums, which I think is probably what you're talking about. We call them noceums, very original uh, name for that, or black flies. Um, that's when you're the most vulnerable because you've got things to do, you know, and you can't be watching your back, so to speak, and you don't want anybody else watching your back. So <laughs> it's, always a, it's always a tough time. And, and you, you know, your best to go with, in my opinion, in my experience, has been best to go with a long jacket. And you have to be careful with that. <laughs> Very careful indeed. Oh, I just, no, stop. I can't, I can't cope with these conjured up images. <laughs> It's like long drop toilets in Africa. You know, you're staying in a little village and they might even have a toilet and it's a long drop. And You go in there and there's a nail with a, a bit of torn up newspaper, if you're lucky, and um, a hole in the ground. And there's not much light, but that's fester ground for mosquitoes. And as soon as you squat, that's it. You hear them come alive. Yippee, breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, that's the worst. And maybe maybe a bit of bug spray, if you happen to have it, might might help you a little bit on that one. But but also when you're using that sort of privy, that's when you learn the uh, the lining up of your ankles with the hole. Uh-huh. Yep, for sure. 
And also that piece of newspaper, it's a good idea to put that down first so then you don't get splashback. <laughs> so hang on, you, you, you're putting a hole in the newspaper and you're putting the newspaper down? No, 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 no. If, you, if there's a long drop toilet, so it's, it's something sloppy way down below your bottom, if you put a piece of newspaper down first, when whatever you drop hits the newspaper, that's where it's going to stop. But if there's no paper, it's going to drop into the slot below and splash back up all over your bottom. Oh, but they think, think of Indian be... toilets. Yeah, um, well, yeah. I think we're going down a hole here. We don't want to go down. <laughs> oh, 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 that was bad. <laughs> no, it's not as bad as where I you just were for all, <laughs> all the people who are enjoying their breakfast, lunch or dinner while they are listening today. Mm-hmm. Mm. We apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting thing. You, you're going to go off on a on a long trip somewhere, maybe around the world, maybe for a month or whatever, maybe close to your, your hometown. What, what are you guys doing for preparation? Are you thinking about bugs in advance or is it just something you sort of deal with when you get on the road and find your, your hotel, camping spot, stop spot where you have to go to the washroom or whatever it is? I always have mosquito coils and uh, mosquito cream, like DEET or something. I mean, that's just on my checklist and that's a given, but... And I've got some little, some cream for just general itchy things. Uh, there's a really good stuff I bought in Bulgaria, and it's sort of mozzie and, and uh, I don't know, other what you call noceums and that. So it's just good to put on, well, it's probably not good for you, or it's probably carcinogenic, but it certainly takes the itch away temporarily. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to not use anything for the itch, but but I certainly like to use stuff if I have to for um, repellent. You know, I carry some repellent um, on my bike. But also, um, I, I find one of the best things is um, dressing appropriately. You know, long sleeves and that sort of thing. If you're into, uh, if you're camping somewhere in particular, you know, we have a lot of mosquitoes. Yeah, oh, without doubt, long sleeves. Yeah, yeah. yeah long sleeves, light, light long colors and long. Yeah. Don't use um, fluorescent green or fluorescent yellow or any really really bright greens and yellows. Um, we were sitting after the Can West meeting last year out on the porch. A nice, very nice restaurant on the lake. And it was lovely, and everything was fine until we looked at Susan's lime green T-shirt, and it was there were literally hundreds of bugs on her T-shirt. Not one on anybody else, but hundreds of them on hers. Just little guys, you know, the fruit fly size. There were there were hundreds. It was absolutely amazing, and she freaked right out. No, can't deal with that. <laughs> that could be the advice for travellers: is to take someone and sucker them into wearing a lime green T-shirt, and then everyone else can have a very pleasant evening. No, no, surely even better than that. Take a lime green T-shirt, a lime green T-shirt, and give it to them. You know, say, "Here, I brought this for you. Look, it's got a great logo on it. Enjoy." <laughs> or better yet, put it on a post somewhere else. <laughs> oh, jeez, you're so practical. <laughs> I'm so nice. And no, I know. And no fun at all. Yeah, well, Susan won't wear that lime green T-shirt anymore. Like, no way. Well, I remember you mentioned that before. And um, through some more digging and a little experimentation, re- really the only thing with light-colored clothing is so that you can actually see the bugs, and particularly ticks, when you're going through an area where there's lots of ticks. That's the idea of the light-colored clothing. Because I was always led to believe that this light-colored clothing somehow repels the bugs or something. It doesn't make much sense because wild animals, which is their main source of food, many insects, they're all dark, or most of them are are dark. So it didn't make a lot of sense. But it's just to spot things. So it makes sense that if you go too far, well, then you're going to attract them. Yep, definitely attract them. I've heard that same thing about yellow in general. Don't don't have a yellow tent. Um, don't you have a yellow roll bag on your bike because it's just going to attract bugs. Yeah, you know who has a yellow tent, though? 
I'm keeping quiet. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair. I mean, but actually, funnily enough, it's it is more of my tent is more on on the edge of mustard, so I think I'm getting away with it. I didn't have any trouble the last few times I've used it. So mm, good. Um, but I mean, mosquitoes and talking of tents. Your tent's got to have two entries, hasn't it? And it's got to have mosquito netting on both so that you can get a breeze yeah. going through and all of that sort of stuff. But um, long sleeves, socks, in, particularly in the dawn and the dusk. And I don't care if I look like um, my feet belong to a Japanese person because I've got my t- socks wrapped around my, my flip-flops. If it's keeping the mozzies away, that's fine as far as I'm concerned. But one of my tips for people when they're going to be traveling in areas where there are lots of mosquitoes um, and developing workplaces um is take your own mosquito net, but not only that, take yourself um, a, a pretty reasonable size hook so that when you're staying in these hotels and they don't have mosquito netting, or if they do, there are so many holes in it, um, it's just inviting them in so that they can get um, have a fest and then get stuck in with you. Um, take your own mosquito net, a hook, because quite often these hotels don't even have anything to hang your mosquito netting on, so just screw your own hook into the ceiling, nobody minds. Um, and then make sure that your mosquitoes netting is tucked around the edge of the mattress so that they can't sneak in around the edges. It's a bit like listening to it rain when you're all cosy in your tent, when you hear a mosquito buzzing, but you know you're inside your net and the bastard can't get you. It's a lovely yeah. feeling. <laughs> yeah, I always worry that it's inside. How, how close yeah. is it? Is it at my side of the net or is it on, on that side of the net? <laughs> always just worry. I was one place yeah. in Kenya and... Um, the mosquitoes were just, there were just so many of them and they were obviously really hungry because I was lying inside my tent and watching the mosquito net bounce as this hordes of mosquitoes were just trying to fly um, fly through it to get at me. It's quite entertaining, really. Who needs television? <laughs> you know, the, the thing is, if you get midges or noceums, um, they'll go right through the netting of many tents. So you're sitting there in your tent and you're thinking that you're fine, but you're itchy like crazy you know if you, especially if you have your arms outside and you can't figure out what it is that's what it'll be it'll be these little bugs that come in and they bite you and there's really the only thing that i found that you can do with that is take your spray in your tent with you and spray your uh, well you best if you do it before you get in somebody's going to call me on that but spray the netting yeah. right that, that keeps them away from the netting that's the only way to 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 slow it down or stop it there is actually um, a liquid and i can't remember what it's called but it's not um anything like deet because deet that's it. That's the one. Yeah, permethrin. Because yeah. DEET um, melts plastic. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but it was originally designed for the American Armed Forces up in Alaska, I think. And so the, the, the soldiers and the airmen were using it. And then they were touching plastic things like the perspex of the, the canopies of the, these mega million dollar jet fighters and leaving finger marks behind. Mm. Um, so <laughs> when you use it on a nylon mosquito net um, lining to your tent, well, you have a chance of melting your way through if you've got enough on your fingers. But what was that stuff again? It, it's permethrin. I remember, as, as I was just going to say about the DEET, the, the way I found DEET eats plastic is many years ago, I, I remember having, I think it was, um, it was either, I think it was musk oil, um, which was he- heavy on DEET, but my, I could feel my fingers sinking into my camera and I realized that it's, it's melting my camera as, as I hold wow. it. So, and then, it, of course, it melts your raincoat and all that sort of stuff. But permethrin <laughs> is, is a chemical that they, they treat clothing with now and it works really, really well it'll last like, I don't know, for 70 or 80 washes or something like that. When they, when they make the fabric, they, they put it in the fabric. In Canada, at least, you can't get it. But I believe in the U.S. you can get it no problem at all. Very good repellent, though. Yeah. Actually, it, kills them. 
that it kills them, and you should also use it to wash your mosquito netting with, like you soak the, the mosquito netting uh, yep. that Sam was talking about in permethrin, and that yep. keeps them away too. Mm. Yep. When we were in Canada and, and the bike broke in the middle of bear country, the lady who rescued us while we were getting eaten alive by mosquitoes on the side of the road, they were just avoiding her, and she said, now I can't remember whether she ate bananas for three months before mosquito season or didn't eat bananas for three months before mosquito season. <laughs> so I guess you'd that. have to test it over a couple of years. But um, I thought you well, Canadians might know that. Um, that <laughs> I eat banana tip. every day. I still get bit. It must be not eating bananas because they're yellow. Bananas are yellow. <laughs> I've heard this before. I think it's vitamin. I was it vitamin E. I think it was vitamin E. Um, people are saying that you know you take vitamin E a lot of it or something like that before the the hunting season, and you know you, you can go hunting and, and not get eaten by mosquitoes. I think what it comes down to is some people they seem to be really in love with, and other people not so much. And I guess if you go hunting and you get eaten by mosquitoes, ha! <laughs> you have to, have <laughs> to be really careful here. You have to be really careful here because. Um, Australians drink an awful lot of beer and everybody thinks, well, that's because they're thirsty and they like to smile a lot. But actually, that, it's, it's common sense because that um, vitamin is in beer. So the more beer you drink, the less like you are to get bitten. That's true, really? isn't it, Brian? Oh, yeah, I never get bitten. The less aware you are that you're getting bitten. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel a thing. <laughs> Brian, you talked yeah. before about the flies of, of Australia. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, we've, we've, I've just spoken to a, a, a mate of mine who's just come back from ten weeks travelling around uh, up north, and the biggest thing they had was stopping at three or four o'clock in the afternoon and getting surrounded by flies. And of course, you have these fly nets over your face, which I'm sure everyone has. Um, and, you know, trying to drink a beer through a fly net is not a pretty sight. <laughs> but um, as soon as the sun goes down, the flies go away. So, you know, you, you time your run. And we've travelled across the Simpson Desert where there was one day there, surely, where we had to set up a gazebo, wasn't there? Yeah. When we, when, um, we wanted to stop and start to set up camp. And the flies were just that bad. Um, our friend had a gazebo um, that we set up and we put a table inside there and sat inside there and you could hear the flies hitting, thumping into the, the gazebo netting, trying to get to us. So crazy. It was just unbelievable. Hunger. And when the sun goes down, they're gone. They Brian, go what kind of flies are these? Oh, well, there's all sorts. Um, we actually have what they call bush flies, which are really tiny little things. Sticky. Uh, yeah, very sticky. Uh, right up to what we call March flies, which bite and hurt uh, in March, of course. Um, so we have all sorts here. Uh, and as, as people think, uh, we have uh, all, all deadly creatures up here. So um, you don't leave boots outside your tent and stuff like that because redback spiders and love boots, don't they? So you, don't, you, you do things like that. But the flies... Um, and I think I told, I, I think I said in the last episode that it depends which way the wind's blowing. We were travelling down the west coast of Australia a couple of months ago, and if the wind was coming onshore, no flies. If the wind changed around and came from the inland, uh, which is just arid desert, you're surrounded by flies. Absolutely black. You know, you'd look at your mate's back and it'd be just black with flies. So, yeah, we have a problem, but it's, it is seasonal. 
um, the cold weather, and that's you know riding up into the mountains as we're going to do in the next uh, couple of days. We probably won't see that many flies because um, the, the the winter's been cold and um, they haven't bred yet. I remember being out in the outback, and like you say, when 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 it gets dark, they all disappear. And I, I remember seeing this bush, and it was absolutely covered in flies. That's where they go to sleep. It, there wasn't a spare leaf. They were all, it was completely covered. So I kicked the bush. It's like, how does it feel, huh? Get some of your own back. Yay. But I, the Australian flies, they were super fast. Trying to swat them, they were just so quick, and you could never get them. But when I got back to England, I was getting loads of flies because the English ones are so slow compared to the Australian ones. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like the bowlers in cricket, Sam. Your bowlers are slow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we notice it with mosquitoes too. Right now we're in Ontario and uh, the mosquitoes here are much faster, much more aggressive than they are in British Columbia. In British Columbia, they seem slower. They seem to fly around, you know, sort of threaten you. I'm going to bite you. I'm coming in. But here they're on you before you can even turn around. And here... In, in, and that's this is a good thing because Brian, you mentioned about how do you prepare yourself because if you don't know the difference between regions, let's say you were going to the coastal British Columbia, for instance, in Canada, you would have very little bugs to worry about, at least by my standards. But you head east and you are inundated. I mean, you, you've got black flies and, and mosquitoes in the spring, and then as the summer goes on, the horse flies and deer flies come out, and and oh, I forgot about the noceums. The noceums are in there, so. What, what, what's everyone doing? Are you thinking about this before you get it? I know, Graham, you mentioned that you always carry a, a repellent thing, a can of repellent with you or, or some sort of repellent. But do you plan it? Do you think about it before you head to a country and go, wow, what kind of bugs do they have? No. No, not really. Um, but I, 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 I've prepared to travel in the outback and people have said, oh, I'm going to go across the Simpson Desert at such and such a time of year. And I said, well, be prepared to be covered in flies. But if you go... At the end of winter, um, and we, as I said, we travelled across there, and we only had one day where it was really bad flies. So sometimes the time of year can, can help you out. Um, well, I, I do tend to have a look at, um, you know, what's coming up in countries that I'm going to be go to just because I'm curious. For me, it's it's just part of the travel experience. And also I do enough stupid things as it is without doing something else that's I could have done something about. And it's, it's things like um, jiggers. Do you guys get those in Australia? Tiny little black creatures that go underneath your toenails when you've been walking around barefoot? Uh, Ew. No, no, no. But um, remember, uh, you might remember Chris Rattay when he was travelling around the world yeah. with his wife on the bike. Yeah. He got bitten on the hand in somewhere in South America, I think, and the bug actually went uh, he scratched it, and uh, the bug actually went under his hand. He had this huge lump that had to be excised out of the back of his hand from just a small scratch where it had got infected and things had grown inside it. Do you yeah. remember that, Greg? I remember that. Wasn't it something about maybe the there was a female laid eggs or something? I forget, but it was yeah, it was it was something. It was like really that. bad. That's, that's one of those. Yeah. That always makes me. Is it one of those stories? The laid eggs things. Often it's infection. But people often yeah. talk about uh, Sam. I want to jump back to you though for a second and, and finish that that jiggers story. But when you walk around bare feet, um, I, I, it looks a little bit like a tick. I mean, I learned about these when I was a kid in Africa, and Friday night was jigger night, and so you would line up and your mum would have a red hot needle, 
and um, she'd be poking around underneath your toenails oh. to, to kill these little black creatures. And if they if you didn't, they actually uh, um, ate your flesh. So it was, you know, kind yeah. of important that Jig and I happened. Um, but, I mean, I learned that just because, you know, being a kid there. But it's the sorts of things that I learned about before um, before travel, like Bill Hart's here, for example. And it's a, it's a pretty nasty um, bug. Um, it's carried by people. Um, it's a worm. And it enters through your skin. And the warning is that whether um, villages um, where people are peeing in the streams and the rivers and that sort of thing, um, and the water's pretty still, those are the places to avoid, not only because somebody's peed, but, you know, Lake Malawi, for example, it's full of bilharts here. And you know that if you go swimming in Lake Malawi, and it is so tempting because it's beautiful, then you know that there's a good chance that you'll get bilharts here. Um, I had it quite a lot when I was a kid, but um, Birgit um, picked it up when we were um, traveling down through. And um, she had symptoms that I didn't didn't know. Um, she started to get very tired. And unlike her, she started to get grumpy. Um, and actually, she was quite unpleasant. Um, and I've told her this, so it's okay for me to say it on air. And she agrees because she just knew that she was not herself. When we finally got down to Cape Town, we, we just had to get her to a doctor. And the doctor listened to her, sim- her symptoms, took a, a blood test, and yeah, she got Bill Hartier. And we had some in Lake Malawi, so it served us right. But um, that was just a course of, um, of tablets, and um, d- the job was done. Sam, is that, is that considered swimmer's itch? Is, is that the same sort of thing? I don't know, but your skin does itch um, when you've got Bill Hartier. Yeah, yeah, sw- swimmer's itch is, is, is like a, is a worm. You go for a mm-hmm. swim, and next thing you know, you itch like crazy. But generally... I think as far as I know that I've seen, they don't really do anything. They, they just, they make you itch like crazy and then they sort of die off. They can't survive. Well, the Bill Hartsy, that's really dangerous because it starts eating your liver and so on. Oh, no, um, that sounds the same. Yeah, many people um, don't get the full-on symptoms. Friends, Mike and Sally, that I traveled with for a while in Africa, um, I got in touch with them when Birgit had got it and just said to them, hey, did you ever get tested when you finished your trip? And they hadn't. And they both got Bill Hartsy. Um, oh, wow. Fortunately, it was caught early enough. I mean, you you know that you've got or there's a chance you've got Bill Hart's here if you start getting um, blood in your urine. But if you get that, then it's too late. So, you know, my advice to anybody who's travelling in um, areas where Bill Hart's here is known to be is when you get out of that area, go and get yourself tested. It's um, it's well worth it. You, you know, Sam, you you said that you're checking before you go somewhere. For for the rest of you, don't you think about you know that sort of thing? You might swim in the wrong spot or something like that, or do you go on sort of local information when you get to a place? By pure luck, I didn't jump into the lake at Pokhara in Nepal. We took a little paddle out paddle boat out there, and um, it looked quite inviting. And I thought, I think I might just jump off the boat into the lake, and something stopped me. And uh, sometime later, I was back in the UK, and I spoke to a friend of mine who worked in the hospital. He said, oh, the amount of people we treat and jumped into that lake, it's rancid. <laughs> oh, I was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> rancid with what? Well, first of all, all the pollution and, um, and uh, all the – I mean, when you walk along the shores, which I did later – you realise that the pollution drains straight into it. There's dead animals at the side of it. I mean, it's oh, a wow. it, it's an open sewer is what it is. Just because it's got some trees and a little island doesn't really make it the idyllic oasis that you want to go swimming around. <laughs> yeah, we're usually very careful about that kind of thing. 
that so often what looks like a perfectly nice place to go swimming is is actually not. <laughs> too often it's too much pollution, like that lake that uh, Graham's talking about. So we're we're pretty careful and tend not to unless we're really sure and there's lots of people swimming there. Then okay, yeah, we'll look at that. But otherwise, no, it's just not worth it. You know, Bilarzia, yeah, we we looked at Lake Malawi when we were there and thought, hmm, that'd be nice. We asked around, and hmm, no, you know, there's nobody at the beach. There's nobody swimming. Hmm. Maybe that's a, a bit of a hint. So it, it's, I mean, while we try and plan ahead and figure out what's ahead of us, sometimes you just have to go on local knowledge and just ask locally. And if you stay in a nice hotel once in a while, you can always ask them. They'll be able to give you good foreign tourist information that's, that the locals might not um, be able to give you the same information because they'll swim in there anyway because they always do, and that's what they do. And they've right. got Bill Hartier anyway, and that's how it gets yeah. passed on. That's right, exactly. Mm. Al Jesse gave me a story while I was staying with him, because I was talking to him about bugs and all this sort of stuff, and he was saying that when he was up in Darwin, um, one day he felt a, a real buzzing inside his ear and um, just gave the side, his ear a, a good tweak, and a fly flew out, and he didn't think any more of it. But um, some weeks later, he started to get a lot of pain in his ear, and uh, went to a doctor, and the doctor said, oh, right, okay, so you had a fly in the ear, did you? A pair of tweezers, and pulled out a long worm that had been growing inside his ear. Mm. Yeah. 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 Hey, we're putting plenty of people off going to oh, Just to think, aren't we encouraging everybody to just get on their bikes and go to foreign lands? This is, yeah, this is really inspirational stuff, isn't it? Forget about border crossings. But, but when you the live in Australia... Don't forget, we live in Australia and we've got more things that'll kill you out here than most other countries, so it's this is nothing for us. But twice I've been bitten by some kind of bitey insect, nothing peculiar about it really, and have ended up with cellulitis. And if you don't get to the doctor very quickly with that, you're in deep shtuk. Uh, the, infection, the infection gets under your skin. The first time was in Darwin and I got bitten on my finger and it just was really itchy for a couple of days and then it started to get very red and then my hand got very red and I went to the doctor and he said, yep, this is what you've got and it's the infection from the bug gets in underneath your skin and uh, he gave me some antibiotics and said you have to keep it still to stop um, at the poison progressing any further and the next morning I took the bandage off and my hand was black so I went back to the doctor and he said clearly this isn't what I hoped to see and uh, I ended up in hospital getting um, antibiotics intravenously and the same thing happened to me in the UK yeah last year ended, didn't it yeah yeah and we ended up in the in the um, hospital at Whitby and they gave me antibiotics straight away and it was fine within a day or so but that's a really weird thing when it happens. But how did you get it? Just bitten, would you? Just, just bitten. bitten. Just bitten. You're not sure by what. But we were sitting out in the, we were staying in little B&B, well, I can't remember where we were, but we were just having a quiet wine and you got a bite on the leg, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah. already bored them with my health story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, but I think the point yep. to be taken from that is, is very important, is that this is in the UK and in Australia, and in the U.S., you can get bit by a rattlesnake. Um, you know, in Canada, you can get eaten by bears. Wherever you live, there's something dangerous. For virtually every country there is. You live in, in the Sahara. There's not much in the way of animals, but the sun's going to get you, et cetera. 
wherever you are, there is a danger. It's always the fear of the unknown and the strange that puts people off going somewhere else. Pay attention to where you're going. Do a little research. What are the dangers? It's, it's all easily available on the Internet. Check it out. Pay attention. Don't do anything stupid. Take, take the advice that's given, like Sam was saying, you know, roll your, your collar up and long sleeves and all the rest of it. Do what makes sense, and it's no more dangerous than where you're normally going. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of it's common sense, isn't it? A little bit of research, sure. common sense, and things aren't to be feared, just respected. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think respect and paying attention is and, the important I was going to say, and paying attention is really important because, you know, the thing is with, with things like ticks or, or mosquitoes, there's diseases there, you know, there are possibility of it. And uh, as a matter of fact, with ticks, I, I want to mention that uh, I was reading that in New York and Connecticut, they report that 90% of ticks are infected with Lyme disease, also high reports wow. in Alaska. So Lyme disease is really getting much more common in ticks. And the thing is, the tick has to be on, I think, more than 24 hours, or maybe it was at 24 hours, I think is what it is. So they have to be on for 24 hours. Well, you've got plenty of time to find it if you know how to check. So it's worth doing a little bit of research, like you said, and find out what you're looking at and just find the tick and have somebody check you because that's what you're going to have to do and and get the tick out so you, you don't get it or whatever it is, you know, like just prepare for it and, and deal with it. But uh, yeah, no, I think that's that's excellent advice, Grant. I think prevention here in Bosnia is big boots for the landmines. <laughs> really seriously big boots. Oh. Wow. Uh, Graham, they bug you when you were walking around. Yeah. <laughs> but Six inches I do, plate on the bottom. Yeah. I do have a, a bug story, though. Can, can I do my bug story? Yeah, I'm curious. Right. Well, when I was in Brazil, I uh, stayed at this guest house uh, and I was with a girl who spoke Spanish and which is similar to Portuguese. So she was able to make herself quite well understood in Brazil. And we were walking back to the guest house at night and on the little path walking up to the house, there was a scorpion. And uh, the, the guest house owner stayed up to let us in. It was uh, sort of late in the evening. And so my friend said to her, oh, you know, on the path is a, a scorpio, a scorpion. And so she went out and we showed her where it was. And she stomped the hell out of it. She was, it was, it seemed a little bit excessive, but she was stomping up and down on it on the concrete, splattered it into a bloody mess. And I thought, right, well, seemed a bit severe, but clearly that's the way you deal with a scorpion. Take note. So I made a mental note of that. And some years later, I was traveling with another girlfriend. I was in Thailand. And I was on this little island in this tiny bamboo thatch uh, little bungalow that we were stayed in. And it had this little concrete uh, cold water shower at the side of it. And on the floor of this concrete cold water shower was a scorpion. My girlfriend said, there's a scorpion in there. Stand back, darling. I'll deal with this. And I thought, I know exactly what to do. So I put on my thick shoe and I stomped the hell out of it. And she was absolutely appalled. She thought it was more barrack. I was like, no, that's what they do in Brazil. I've seen it done. That's what you do to a scorpion. And uh, she never let me, she never let, let, let that go. She always... I always thought it was rather excessive behaviour and that. Now, I've moved to Bulgaria, where you get scorpions. And my girlfriend um, found them in her garden regularly and would capture them with a little glass and a piece of paper underneath and take them to somewhere else and let them free. So you can't do that. It's a scorpion. They'll kill you. You have to stomp them to death. It's like, no, no, not these ones. It's the Bulgarian ones. They're only little. So the little ones are the worst. You've got to watch out for the little ones. And um, she came around once 
and she had a little spot on her belly. And a scorpion had got into a bath towel. She got out of the shower, dried herself with her towel, and the scorpion that was in her towel had stung her. And it was somewhere between a nettle sting and a wasp sting. It really wasn't that significant. So I've had to significantly drown, downgrade my reaction to the scorpion. So what, what do you do now? You use softer shoes? i think a lot depends on where you are in the world because some some places scorpions are um absolutely deadly um when i was um with um hunter suzanne and dan we were talking about cowboys and so on hey look you know it's um southern arizona new mexico um texas and so on and we were talking about how rugged cowboys would have been back in the early days and how they would be setting out into these lands with very, very little knowledge about how anything worked and the the dangers and they were sleeping on the ground with their blankets and all this sort of stuff. And these guys must have been bitten by scorpions all of the time because scorpions are attracted by warmth, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. That's it? Yep, that was it. Oh, okay. I was waiting I, for a punchline. I thought there was a punchline too. I was waiting for something. There. No, it's just respect for the cowboys and, and the rugged life that they, you know, they had. Yeah, the scenery may be absolutely beautiful, but you know, just setting out, and not knowing where your water is, and um, not knowing about the different snakes and scorpions and all of the rest of it. Um, amazing courage, these guys. Yeah, the thing is, though, I don't think you can go and kill everything that you're scared of or that may be dangerous to you. And I think that's a that's um sort of a thought process that a lot of people have that, that I don't really subscribe to at all because um, there, there's, first of all, there's, there's tons of them. I mean, it's, it's like trying to kill, well, you can kill things off. I think that's the problem too. So now I'm, I'm going to have to backpedal on that. But I mean, you can certainly go in like what we do with, with spiders and some of the, um, all spiders bite, whether, you know, these ones in particular are going to bite you each time or capable of biting through skin is beside the point. We, we find a way to scoop them up and take them outside. Some of them are big enough and I'm sure they do bite. We, we get um, brown recluse and uh, different uh, uh, spiders like that, but you can't just kill them all. No, no that's, I always, that's right. I always let a spider free. And generally, I, I don't, I, I think other than mosquitoes and flies, I'm pretty much prepared to live and let live. But um, like I said, the whole scorpion thing. <laughs> well, no, take I'm, no I'm, prisoners. I'm not picking well, at you, no Graham. There's no wonder she's an ex-girlfriend, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. I'm not so picking at you, Graham. I'm just saying that I think that's a, a common thought process, isn't it? Like, you know, people sure. see something, they want to kill it. I mean, I do agree with you but with mosquitoes. I have a lot of trouble being a Buddha and letting that mosquito go. Yes, <laughs> let them into your okay. heart. Yeah. But spiders, we're in favor of spiders because yeah. the spider webs catch all those annoying insects. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Yeah. Susan yeah. hates bugs generally, but spider webs, yep, no problem. She won't kill a spider, so we look after. There's them. nothing better than watching a spider web first thing in the morning with the dew dripping off it. Isn't yeah, that beautiful? beautiful. Yeah, one of the most true. beautiful things. But it, and every every creature has its purpose, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, cockroaches. I'm not too sure about. Yeah, I'm not too sure about the dengue fever mosquitoes either. Because um, yeah. I didn't even know that um, dengue fever was carried by daytime mosquitoes. Normally in the daytime, mosquitoes aren't really around, are they? They're around the dawn and the dusk. But dengue mm-hmm. fever mosquitoes are around during the daytime, and um, they love the shade underneath trees and so on. Well, if you don't know that, then you can get zapped. And of course, I did. And as you know, I owe my life to a Thai prostitute. Not everybody can say that. Have we said the word motorcycle at all in the past hour? 
think so. I was going to say, you know, preparing for your trip. But I would, we were like pin cushions getting ready to, to travel. Um, and malaria is the big thing that most doctors and people talk about. And yeah. our doctor said to us, if you go and sit around a campfire in a pair of shorts and a singlet and no shoes on and get bitten by a mosquito and get malaria, don't come crying to me. That's yeah. pretty fair comedy. I think that's that if anyone has taken malaria uh, medications, I hate them. I started taking them and you feel nauseous and you can't stand the sun and all that sort of stuff. Um, really, the best protection is just cover up. Yeah. We took medication for uh, larium through most of Africa. And while a lot of people say larium's terrible stuff, we had absolutely zero issues with it. It no, goes yes. from person to person. I, I've met exactly. people who have been completely paranoid when they've been traveling. And there was one guy that I met um, in Africa. He'd been in Africa for a year by that time taking larium, which, of course, uh, he'd been told not to. You know, it's in the small print. Um, and I heard about him two years later, and he was in um, an asylum because yeah. he had damaged him yep. mentally. Yep. That's right. Yeah, don't take it for too long, for sure. But I think yeah. you have to take all of these things with a, a grain of salt um, and actually read what they say. Um, I forget what the number is. There's a percentage of people who have a problem with larium, and they mm -hmm. shouldn't take it. That's fine. Um, there's a percentage of people who have no problem. So you have to use, make sure that you pay attention to the symptoms, understand what negative symptoms are, and pay attention to them. Um, I'll tell a little story. We had a guy wrote on the hub, he was in Africa and he was having all kinds of problems and he was feeling really paranoid and everything else. Um, and he was afraid, generally, you know, all those bad things that you generally hear ascribed to larium. And somebody says, well, are, what, what are you taking for um, malarial protection? And I forget what it was. It's, it was the other one, not larium. And everybody said, oh, I thought that was only larium that did that. No, the other one can do it too. So everybody said, okay, we decided... Switch to larium, try that. A couple of weeks later, he writes back and says, yep, larium solved my problem. I'm fine. No issues. Mm. So everybody is different. And I think that is something that you really have to take and understand. And just because it's good for Joe doesn't mean it's good for you or if you're your wife or whatever. Read the, read the medication warnings, read and understand the symptoms of problems and pay attention. You know, back to that again. And probably seek professional advice before you go, just yeah. so you, you're aware of everything. That's all yeah. I was going to add to that. Yeah, yeah I think that's really critical. because and, and you have to go to a tropical medicine clinic because your mm -hmm. GP hasn't yeah. got a clue. Yep. In the UK, there's the um, St Pancras um, Tropical Diseases Hospital. And these yep. guys are so full of information and they impart it in such a way that you think, oh, right, okay, that makes sense. You know, they don't baffle you with science. Yes, so you actually take it on board. Yeah, I've been there and, and you're right. They're absolutely excellent. I wish there was more of that like that. Um, something that both Grant and um, Graham mentioned just now um, about an insect repellent and things like that. Um, a top tip that somebody gave me was when you get to a new area, and it's very different to the area that you've been traveling in, check out what the locals are using. Because quite often um, uh, an insect repellent that works absolutely fine in Scotland is absolutely useless in the Balkans. Yes, absolutely. Totally agree. Check out what the local stores are selling. Yep. Yeah, I don't want to cover myself in cow dung. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for the skin, Brian. 
Well, coming up, we're going to get into talking about the environment and motorcycling. But before we do that, I want to mention our fresh tracks, our fresh tracks, our sponsor for this episode, which is Fresh Tracks. <laughs> Go figure. So it's freshtracks.co.uk. They have a new thing that is just for us motorcyclists, actually. They, they call it Adventure Space. It's a one-acre plot on their property that's set up for you to camp on, to ride on. It's also very close to a network of green lanes, which are you know dirt roads that you can go ride on that are uh, sort of um, not main riding roads, more challenging. And now they are within, uh, sorry, they're under an hour from central London uh, on the Hertz-Essex border. And you can go alone or you can take a small group of friends. You can test your gear, practice your riding skills. You can camp there, leaving no trace. And um, you, there's also a, um, a cabin that you can rent as well, or you can stay in their their big luxurious uh, area, which is a, a much bigger thing. Um, I think they have a three-night minimum for that. So it's a great place to go if you're looking for an outing. You're close to London, and you're looking to get out there and ride. So drop by and check them out, freshtracks.co.uk forward slash adventure space. Now, I think you're going to have to go directly to that page to get it, freshtracks.co.uk forward slash adventure space. That link is also in the show notes. So um, before we leave this, just just any last, I really like what, what, what you guys said about the, the tropical disease thing, Tro- going to somebody who, who specializes in that before you go to a place, I think that's excellent information. Um, any other, any other, just those quick tips before we wrap this up for thought process before you go somewhere in your planning stages of dealing with bugs? Get used to it. Too much. of life. <laughs> Susan doesn't much like bugs, which is fairly not uncommon. Um, and her worst experience, worst nightmare was she was working on traveler's diarrhea and not feeling very well. In the middle of the night, she got up to go to the bathroom in a hotel in, I want to say Mazatlan, but I'm not sure if it was, but somewhere around there. And I just remember this whimpering, Grant, Grant, what? Come here. And there she was squatting on the toilet. And there was cockroaches, like 10 of them, on the wall. Yeah, great. Big ones, like the two-inch long ones. And occasionally one of them would take off and fly to another wall. And she was just, oh, that was probably the lowest, most miserable moment in her entire life. It's just awful. Poor season. with her. Yeah. So, but you, you have to get used to the fact that they're going to be there. And you, like we've talked about already, you can't kill them all. Get used to the fact they're there. As long as they're not bothering you, it's okay. Uh, if you're traveling down through West Africa, dealing with cockroaches is relatively straightforward. You just go down to the local market and buy yourself a packet of doom. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. What is that? Um, it's a powder that you um, sprinkle around where there are cockroaches and things like that. A friend of mine yeah. was in the Peace Corps, and... Um, he had so many cockroaches in his in his house, and he they were just driving him dotty because they carry disease and so on. Um, and he slowly tracked down where they were coming from, the outhouse. Mm. So he went down to the market and he bought a big box of doom, and poured it down into the long drop, not realizing that his long drop was shared with his neighbours, and all of the cockroaches went flying out of his toilet out of his neighbor's toilet and into his neighbor's house. So all he could hear was these shouts of rage and horror <laughs> infestation of cockroaches when flying through this guy's house. Wow, that, that has to wrap up our bug piece. Yeah. <laughs> so, Please. So, so we've talked about bugs and, and sort of their connection with climate change and how that affects bugs. But 
in the news. I know we've all heard of, you know, the changes that are happening with the higher temperatures around the world. Um, I mean, look at look at the thing. Fires, droughts, storms, flooding. Uh, most recently, the Amazon rainforest fires. We, we've heard about that. Hurricane Dorian that just came through. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's you can't deny the fact that humans have a, a part in this is what I'm trying to say. I don't want to get political about it. I think that's what I'm trying to avoid. So to me, I mean, if you just look at how many people are living in the world, the amount of vehicles we use and the environmental changes we make, the clearing of land pollution, et cetera, like that. It's pretty clear that we're changing things and how we can't pretend that travel doesn't contribute to it. It does. So here's where, where we should start on this, I think. From an environmental point of view, are, are there disadvantages or advantages, I prefer advantages, of motorcycle travel over other types of travel? Have you guys thought about this before? Sure. Motorcycles are way less polluting than, the, than cars. So assuming it's a relatively new motorcycle, all the old ones aren't so good, um, and certainly way better than an airplane. And uh, just another thought that just kind of popped into my head. During, during your normal life at home, you go for a ride, right? Well, how many miles a year do you put on? Hmm, 10, 15,000 miles, 20,000 kilometers, whatever. On a trip, you're probably not going to put on much more miles than that in a year anyway. So there's really not a heck of a lot of difference. It may sound like an apologist for travel, but when you think about how many miles you travel in your normal year at home versus how many miles you're going to travel once you're on the road, eh, how much of a difference is there really? And then we have the, the part that goes along with the travel is, of course, we have the understanding and connection with people in foreign countries and our improved understanding of the way people in other parts of the world live and think and the consequences of that greater understanding hmm, maybe it balances out the negatives of traveling by vehicle. I don't know. Something to think about. Well, well, and you, you just look around you as you're driving to work and look at all the number of cars and you see one, maybe two people per car. That motorcycle's so much more efficient. We, we did a radio program and we got some feedback by somebody who said, and here you are polluting the, the, the world by traveling across the world on your motorcycle. I'm thinking... No, I'm not. And I agree with you there, Grant. We're not um, creating any more than, in most cases, a lot less of uh, uh, our form of pollution on the environment. But, you know, how far do you go with this? Um, And look at the way things are developing with electric vehicles and solar power and wind power and things like that. I think we're becoming more realistic about our impact on the environment. I'm just, um, in today's paper, there's a, we have something like 80 fires um, burning in Queensland at the moment through rainforests that have been there for millions of years. Um, and one of the, the headlines is fires are burning where they never used to burn. And that's all because of climate change. And that's by a, a very um, eminent firefighter and professor, you know, and you just think, well, yeah, we we travel the world, we see the world, and I think it enlightens us more to what sort of impact we're having. What do you guys think about that? I totally agree with you. I think it's important that we, the people travel and they see other parts of the world. It opens their eyes. It makes them more flexible. It makes them more understanding and more willing to see another point of view. And I think in today's political climate, that's absolutely crucial. Mm. We have to be more flexible in our thinking. We have to be more open to other ideas. 
and the way things are done in other parts of the world. I think that's crucial. Yeah. I read a report a few years back which said that the next um, significant um, war is probably going to be over water. Yes. Because with climate um, changing and so many parts of the world becoming hotter and hotter, the water's drying up. And yeah, people are finding it really difficult to, you know, to, to, to find enough to drink alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to drag you back to motorcycle travel in particular. And one of the things I think Grant's point was excellent about saying that this is, um, it, it's important that, that some people, even if it's just our ambassadors go out there and, and, uh, and I don't mean a political ambassador, I mean our motorcycle ambassadors go out there and learn the things and bring them back like you guys do. Um, and, and then everyone else learns from it. But, but what other, other advantages I'm, I got to thinking about, you know, how many times might you take a vacation if you're going for a week Whereas if you were taking a longer motorcycle trip, um, I wonder what the trade-off would be there in fossil fuel burned, you know, flying to somewhere and then flying to somewhere again and then maybe flying somewhere again throughout the year as opposed to traveling on your motorcycle somewhere and getting a more in-depth experience and um, I think probably a a less of a carbon footprint. I mean, all this is talking off the cuff, of course. I don't don't have data to, to crunch here. Well, I'm going to say something that probably is going to come across as reasonably pompous, and I'm sorry about that, but it, it is what's in my heart. And that is when I'm doing these trips in the United States, I'm flying here. And what damage is every flight that I make, long-haul flight, um, causing the environment? But one of the things that I want to do with my life is I want to encourage other people to get out of their home environments. I want them to see what the rest of the world is like. And I want them to be able to say, well, actually, I've just seen that on the news and that's not how I know it to be. Um, and just because somebody's skin color or religion is different, um, it doesn't mean that they're bad people. And those are the sorts of things that everybody who does a long trip outside of their own country are coming back into their country and they're adding such huge perspective. And I mentioned earlier on about um, the risk of war. Um, It's darn sight harder to shoot somebody if you've shaken them by the hand. And traveling does that shaking by the hand. And it's important that we all, every person who travels outside of their country comes back and shares the information that they pick up. And of course, some things that they're going to see, yeah, they're exactly as they're being told. But so many times it's just not, sorry, pompous. Well said, though. No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it's a it's a difficult topic. There there are those, as I think Sam mentioned already, that consider it to be too late. We've had the warnings, as you said, Sam. It's been going on for a lot of years. We, we've had plenty of warnings. Are we at a, the end of the line of sort of a short run of, of privileged generations that have managed to travel the world and, and do the things that we do? Are, are we at that the end of that run now? Or is it sort of coming to an end? The, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is, you know, is there any point in worrying? Are we are we on you know the the proverbial uh, Titanic basically, and sitting here worrying about the waiters wasting the food that's left on the plates when the thing is sinking already? Let me tell you what I've just seen the last four days since I left Bulgaria, through Macedonia, through Albania, and and uh, through Montenegro. I've been riding back roads uh, through canyons and. You think you're seeing mist in the canyons, but what you're feeling is this acrid smoke in your lungs. And what they do is they have these huge dumps on the side of the cliffs, and that is where everything is dumped. I would imagine that is where the big uh, commercial 
rubbish trucks are dumping an entire village stuff. It doesn't look like it's someone who's just fly-tipped. These are huge piles which are then burnt. There is constantly smouldering plastic and rubbish and dump it down the canyon so you can't see. It's a steep cliff. You can't see it fall down these crystal clear waters, but burn it on the way. And this is a regular thing. You can't hold your breath long enough as you ride past. And when you do inhale, you feel this smell of this taste of plastic. This is happening in European countries. We're not talking Bangladesh here. We're not talking India. We're talking countries in Europe. And this is how they're dealing with their rubbish, is they're throwing it off a cliff and they're burning it. And I'm riding along on a little 650 single, which is burning significantly less oil than the last one is, did. <laughs> uh, people, people have said I can justify anything. But <laughs> to be honest, if, if that's the way that we're dealing with the excessive waste that is occurring because there appears to be no recycling, how can you recycle it if it's burnt before you even get a chance to go and recycle? Then, then why bother? I mean, we're fucked. Why bother? Motorcycles are so much more efficient than a car. Uh, uh, I know they've got bands in London and other places uh, uh, in in the central business districts of most big cities nowadays. Well, that's a bloody good thing, I think. And, and people travelling on motorcycles should be given a bit of leeway because they're actually less polluting than the bloke driving his Rolls Royce and Mercedes into his office or his Porsche, his big flash Porsche travelling at 40 kilometres an hour on his way to work in peak hour traffic. Yeah, uh, Brian, surely we are, we, are, we are better. Brian, I was going to say that the Rolls Royce probably has better emissions than uh, Graham's KLR. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I'm, I'm really curious here, Brian, what is Shirley making for breakfast? <laughs> you can hear her scratching away there. <laughs> is it um, cereal? Toast and veggie might. No, oh. for breakfast. Oh, no. Oh, disgusting. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> ah. She is too. <laughs> Stop, Shirley. You know, when there are people that say um, it's too late, I think, okay, if we do nothing, then it's, it's really going to be too late much quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I'm probably going to die before it becomes a real problem. Okay, but what about my nieces and nephews? They're going to have to live with this. They're going to have to start living in tunnels and places like that because the world outside has become literally too dangerous. And that's what the scientists are saying that it's likely to to come to. Um, I ride my motorcycle. Um, I do fly from time to time. Um, I don't tend to do short hop flights because you use a huge amount of energy taking off and, and landing. I walk as much as I can. I ride my bicycle as much as I can. And normally um, I'm riding my motorcycle. Otherwise, I don't own a car. And we recycle. Um, we think twice about turning something on. And, you know, Burger even has me turn the computer off at nighttime because it's just burning that tiny little bit of energy um, overnight. And, well, nobody's using the computer. So why keep it on? You know, little things like that. We could all be doing little things that make a difference. Are we damaging the world by going out and do motorcycle trips? I think it's been said just now that it's, it is a balance for the good that can be done um, versus the damage that can be done. But motorcycles, and hey, more and more overlanders are choosing smaller CC motorcycles anyway. 
Mm. Yes. And if it makes anybody feel any better, actually, just as a little side note, we're actually producing this show on solar power, which is kind of regular what we do all summer. It's um, it runs off of uh, off of just the sun's energy, so that's kind of cool. I mean, that's a, a that's tiny, fantastic. tiny, a tiny yeah, contribution, anyway. Yeah. I've got a good hey, example from, from last from last week. I uh, rode up to Canberra for a meeting for this ride we're doing, and uh, one of my other mates um, who had to get up there in a hurry, he flew up. So okay, we have a nice night and we we had our meeting, and I'm riding back <clears throat> to Victoria. And he's catching a flight back. Well, by the time I got on my bike and rode back 700 kilometres, he was home probably 40 minutes before me. By the time he got to the airport, waited around, um, you know, um, got on the plane, got in his car when he got to the other end and, and trudged his way through city traffic. So, you know, it was six, 700 kilometres, and it, it was like 40 minutes extra. Mm-hmm. Big deal. And, and not I'll only use, that, Brian, when he, when he got back, he's probably looking to do some sort of recreation. You've done yours. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Fighting kangaroos going through the, the, the dark, but that was all good fun. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, is, it is a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, because, you know, we all know that we're, we're affecting the environment when we ride a motorcycle, when you do anything. But what do you do? You know, in my opinion, I think it's the only real big things I think that are going to save things have to be done at a government level. Um, They need to to make massive changes. I won't get into all of that sort of thing. But as as individuals, we can do what we can. And, you know, I know, Sam, you're saying, you know, you recycle and stuff like that. And some people may think that's sort of cliched or whatever. But, hey, you got to do something. You know, you you have to do something as an individual and and I think that's the first step, you know, to to sort of change the way we look at things. But but anything else with, with motorcycle travel? Are, are there some advantages? To, is there an environmental advantage at all to motorcycle travel? Would someone use more? I don't know if they're backpacking or something. And I don't want to point fingers. I don't want to blame someone else. I'm just trying to, I think, find some justification for it or at least some relief. I've seen I've, I've, there's been a lot of cyclists on this trip with their panniers front and rear and their big healthy calves and their skinny little stomachs and I always wave at them because I used to cycle as well though they're doing it in a in a very green and environmentally friendly way a nice peaceful tranquil pace um but when I was cycling I was eating so much so they're actually you know taking a lot of our food from us because they're eating more than their fair share. <laughs> and it's well known, isn't it, Graham, that pasta trees don't help the environment. Mm. They don't soak up the, the, the carbons. I, I just, I don't know what to say after Graham's comment. <laughs> I, I can think of a million reasons why I wouldn't want to ride a motorcycle, a, a, a bicycle, but the fact that I would eat too much is now going to be right up there. <laughs> I think bicycles are great. I think it's a great way to get around. I just think the only improvement you can do with that is put an engine in it. Next time you see one, stop them and have a discussion about that. Just do that. Just say, you know what? You know what really go great here? Hey, we, we got a big a, space. You could take out those water bottles. You don't need to drink as much. Put an engine in there. <laughs> you know, one of the things that we've been probably all seeing over the last week or so is um, this business about Ewan and Charlie about to. Uh, do the long way up on electric motorcycles. A, I don't know whether that is actually true or whether it's just lots of hype that's going on, but um, I wonder whether that will raise people's consciousness about, um, you know, electric vehicles. 
Mm. Consciousness, definitely, but depend on the success of the trip will depend on whether it actually does any good for electric bikes or not. Well, well, I mean, is, is are, are electric bikes really, or electric cars really the answer? I'm not sure. There's a um, lot of data that suggests that there's an incredible environmental waste in building them, the batteries. Mm. Um, I, to me, I, I see that, it, you know, automation being almost more important than that. And I don't want automation at all because I like to be in control of my vehicle. But there's so many things that automation could cure, you know, with um, efficiency and just so many things. And not to mention accidents. I almost think that would be better than worrying about um, electric. And it almost makes me wonder if electric's almost going to be jumped, you know, with automation. Because there's, there's a lot of automated vehicles coming out. I think you're going to have a combination of the two of them. Yeah. You're going to have automated electric vehicles is what it's going to be happening. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And I'm thinking, will it just bypass sort of our our love of vehicles and everything, which I don't want to see happen at all, because obviously we're all, you know, in love with our motorcycles, <laughs> so to speak. Is that, a bit, is that a bit the death of our species? I reckon if, they, if we go right down that automation thing, there was a thing on the, on the news the other night, a guy driving down a freeway in a Tesla car, automated car, asleep, Asleep yes. at the wheel, and his passenger is asleep as well. So at least his passenger wasn't terrified by the fact that he was asleep. Good point. <laughs> Good point. Always a silver lining. <laughs> Always. <laughs> hey, we got a um, we got an email here from a fellow named Marcos who listens to the show. He's from Argentina. He started listening to the show because he likes motorcycle travel, but also it's a good listening exercise to learn the language. I thought that was kind of interesting. Not from me. <laughs> no, he's talking real English. He's talking about us on the other side of the pond. Um, but oh, <laughs> it's going to be saying "oot" instead of "out." Marcus, I'm just Go beginning. To the boot. I'm just wondering whether Marcus is getting um, an accent that is made up a little bit of Canadian, a little bit of English, a little bit of Australian. <laughs> yeah, I would think. He'll be able to understand all three of them, though. So what, what his question was, was what uh, are you doing for language preparation before you visit any country that, you, that you're not a, a native uh, speaker of their language? Do you practice ahead of time? I, we've talked a little bit about this. I know, I know, Shirley, you've mentioned before about your uh, your sign language book that you use. But um, yeah, are, you guys, yeah. are you guys spending much time learning the language or, or at least trying to get some sort of grasp on it before you get there? Well, we did uh, Spanish lessons for about six months before we went to South America. And I did Italian lessons before we did one of our European trips. Um, I did French and German at school. Look. I can order petrol and a room uh, and food in about five languages, and I can count to ten in Russian. But um, you know, sign language is still the best, unless you're really, really going to put your head around it. Most places we went, you find people that speak English. Or, or Google anyway. Translate. Or Google Translate, which is a bit mm-hmm. hilarious, but. Mm. Oh, there are some great apps out um, that are even better than Google Translate. Um, but I was trying to learn how to say the basics. You know, you surely just mentioned about getting room and um, buying petrol. It's the, the other basics like hello, please, thank you, which is the way to goodbye. Is there a toilet here? That's always useful. Um, how much is a room? Can I ha- camp here? And how much is that? And I find if I can start to learn those, then I start to understand more about what's being said back to me about various things. 
Yeah. Um, but the reality is, if you're doing a long overlanding trip, you're going through countries fairly rapidly, and so often the language changes dramatically as you go through a different country. So it's really hard, isn't it, to keep up with um, the, keeping, you know, with languages in advance of getting to a place. The other problem we found, or I found, is you practice a question and think, yep, I'm really up for this, and then they'd answer you and you'd think, I wonder what they said. <laughs> they always say it back too fast. And as well as, well as learning, please, thank you, um, where is, the other one is, um, more slowly, please, must espacio, must por favor. Uh-huh. That's also, very handy. And also the one that I liked and used a lot was, how do you say something or other? Como se dice in Spanish, how do you say this? <laughs> Um, and you could learn that way, and that really helped. But uh, I think it's it's important just to try and get at least a few words, you know, please, thank you, you know, the basics um, before you enter a country. Um, I mean, if you're going to go through a tiny country and you're going to be there for three days, maybe not bother. But for anything significant, yeah, it really helps. I mean, I've told a story before of our entry into Egypt where Shukran was an, a wonderful um, entry. All of a sudden, oh, wow, you speak Arabic. Well, actually, no, I don't, but <laughs> come on in. Um, it doesn't take a lot to get on their side, to make them welcome you and say, oh, you're trying. I think that you try and you have a few words is a huge bear or a huge um, breakdown of the barriers to communication with people. All of a sudden, you're, oh, and they want to help you learn their language. They want to teach <laughs> you some new words. Um, and you become a friend and you connect. And that's it's a respect sort of, thing, isn't it? Yes, Before absolutely. you go into a country, just learning those few basic words. People really warm to you, don't they? And you may yep. make mistakes and you may make them laugh, but hey, laughter's good. Yep, absolutely. I, I don't know who it was that said it just now, but somebody said, the thing is, so many people around the world speak English. And it is true. Um, it's the business language. It's the language that gets taught in, um, first as a second language in, in so many um, countries around the world. And... How many times do you start trying to say something and somebody just replies to you in English? Because they want to practice their English. And I think that's also um, kind of cool. But just going back briefly to um, learning a bit of the language before you get to a place. Birgit worked really hard to learn some Norwegian before we went and travelled there for a month. And we walked into a cafe um, and she went up to the counter and she ordered us coffees. And the, the, the expression on the girl behind the counter's face just lit up. And then she rattled Norwegian at Birgit and Birgit and I just looked at each other, burst into <laughs> laughter. And then the girl behind the counter clicked and she was laughing with us too. We had no idea what she said. <laughs> Probably said something bad. Well, um, moving on to plugs, we will go to the people with Vegemite on their breath first. <laughs> I'd just like to say how much I'm enjoying my Vegemite on toast. If you want us to get up at six o'clock in the morning, um, you're going to have to put up with that, I'm afraid. Sorry about that. Um, my plug is um, we're going away on this trip this weekend, so I'm going to be reactivating the Aussies Overland Instagram account. So if anyone's interested in what two and a half thousand motorbikes look like in Canberra at our memorial service, um, 
please check out Aussies Overland on Instagram. Oh, that's great because I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask if there's any photos around because, you know, that's, that's a lot of bikes in one spot. So Aussies Overland on Instagram. Very cool. On Instagram, yeah. Well, I'll try and put stuff up as we're, as we're traveling because we stop for morning tea and lunch and we stop for lunch at a beautiful beachside uh, town. So if I can get some nice photos, I'll put them up on Instagram, Aussies mm. Overland. Thank you. Great and if anyone's interested to, to follow it even a bit closer, there's a website called walledwarride.com, uh, which has um, all the, the details on it and how it started and why it started and all the rest of it. My plug is really a safety plug more than anything else. There's a story um, just in the last couple of days um, of a guy riding the outback here. And as you know, the outback roads are mostly... Um, dirt, sometimes with um, deep sand ruts and all the rest of it. And a lot of guys go out there and um, love to ride that for the solitude and all the rest of it. And I get that. I get that. But um, you must look after your own safety and the safety of people who have to come and rescue you if something goes wrong. There was a guy um, just recently who uh, came to grief out in uh, the outback blocks of Queensland on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere where you don't see a car for hours and hours and hours, if not days sometimes, and he broke his ankle. He had an EPIRB with him, and when he activated his EPIRB, uh, they put a plane up, found him, uh, they sent a helicopter, the local police um, were able to start travelling out towards him, and within four to five hours, he was rescued. If you want to go into outback places like that, particularly in Australia where you perish if you go off the dirt, uh, off the beaten track and something goes wrong, please, please, please carry some sort of device that uh, alerts people as to where you are. That's my plug. I, I like what you said there about also take care of yourself and also protecting the people that have to come and find you because had he not had any perb and then people have to go look for him, that's a whole new ball of wax. You know, you've got people risking their own lives in some cases to try and locate someone. So excellent point, Brian. Um, moving on to Sam. Sam, what do you have for plugs? Well, if it's okay with everybody, I'd like to just talk about the next presentation venues that I've got coming up because, um, yeah, we're um, almost halfway through the tour now. Um, when this comes out, I will um, hopefully before the 21st of September, I'm going to be at Adventure Motorsports um, of Northwest Florida. That's in Pensacola. And then on September 24th, I'm going to be at Pandora's in Chattanooga. And then October the 2nd, I'm going to be at Motorcycles of Charlotte in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, I'll be ending up the tour at Overland Expo East in Virginia, which starts on October the 11th. And um, I've only been away from home a couple of weeks, but um, I'm already looking forward to um, Birgit joining me in uh, for Motorcycles of Charlotte presentation and Expo East. She's going to fly out to Charlotte and join me um, and have a lot of fun sitting on the back of the bike. Hmm. I think she's going to take tranquilizers. Um, but the other thing I just wanted to say is I'm getting a lot, a lot of questions recently about where people in the States can get hold of my books from because they're hunting on Amazon and not necessarily finding them. It, it's an ongoing battle, long story. Um, but if anybody does want to get hold of my books, then the Book Depository, which funnily enough is a branch of Amazon, um, they're amazingly efficient and they stock all four of the books and there's free worldwide delivery from them. So that's um, the Book Depository. 
And uh, yeah, thank you very much. Graham, what have you got for a plug? Uh, right, well, I sort of mentioned at the beginning of the show on this little European tour, because this weekend I'm going to the HU event in Italy. I am then going to the Discover Overland event. That's on the weekend of the 20th of September. Hopefully the show will be out by then, maybe. And uh, that's in Holland. And I'm going to be doing a presentation there on the Friday night. Yeah, that's the 20th of September. Discover Overland. This is their third year now. And um, it's motor-orientated uh, overland vehicles. So probably not bicycle-orientated, but certainly not just motorcycles. And so I'm going to be doing that. Then I cross the channel back to the UK where I'm going to be at the Adventure Overland Show in Stratford Avon. Now, you might have already been to Horizons Unlimited or the uh, Adventure Bike Rider Show or the Overland event, and you probably ain't got any money left. That doesn't matter because the Adventure Overland Show is totally free. If you turn up on a motorbike, it is 100% free to get in, 100% free to camp, and 100% free to go all the seminars and presentations. And one of the really good things about the show is it covers all aspects. I would say it's probably a little bit more four- or six-wheel orientated, but I think that's quite exciting because you get to see a whole bunch of different stuff that you wouldn't see at a purely motorcycle event. So... Uh, I've really enjoyed them in the past, and uh, it's, the show has, has really improved and uh, really grown. Uh, the, the reason it's free is because the organiser has realised that perhaps over the years he hasn't catered to motorcyclists perhaps as well as he could have done in the past. So to encourage them, that's, he's absolutely uh, annihilating the charge. It's totally free to do that. So... Those, uh, uh, you've already missed one. So you've got the Discover Overland event, 20th of September, the weekend of the 20th. You've got the Overland Adventure Show, Stratford Avon in the UK on the weekend of the 26th of September. And then the weekend after that, the Sunday after that, on the 6th of October, there is the Cop Doc Show where uh, in Ipswich in Suffolk, where I'll also be not present, presenting, but I'll just be there with my gazebo and books like I am every year. And in between those last two shows, I'm going to be in the studio recording my third book, Different Natures, as an audio book. I'm not going to say any more about that. We'll save that for the next show. But they're my plugs. Well, that sounds like a busy fall you've got going on. Good for you. Um, Grant, what have you got for plugs? Oh, all kinds of things. We have eight meetings left this year, although by the time this show comes out, it'll probably be seven because Italy is this coming weekend, as Graham knows all about and has already talked about. Um, France is the following weekend, September 20 to 22, and I'd love to tell everybody, go to a France meeting. It's going to be wonderful, but I can't because they're sold out, booked mm. up solid, campgrounds full. Um, however, the same weekend, you could go to the Hags Bank mini meeting you know, up in northern England. Um, following weekend, we've got California, September 26 to 29. That's going to be a good one as always. We've got some great new, um, skills training and challenge courses set up there. It's going to be a lot of fun for riding. Um, Bolivia, there's a mini meeting backside of Bolivia on the Eastern side of the Amazon or the, uh, Andes, I should say, not the Amazon. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that would be a little tricky. Um, beautiful location. It's very small meeting, good fun, good people. Uh, Germany, uh, the autumn meeting is October 31st. And then, of course, there's South Africa, which is one of our favorite, favorite meetings, November 7. 
And if you're in the South Africa area, then you definitely want to get to this one because this is the only place you can ride your motorcycle in a game park. It's a private game park owned by the same guy that's running the meeting. So check that one out. And our last event of the year is in Ecuador, November 22. That's also the last couple of years. They've had a great time there. Good event. Check that one out. Beautiful place in your Quito. And that's all I've got. Next year, we've got all kinds more coming. We're working on next year's schedule. Um, but there's wherever you are, there's a meeting somewhere not too terribly far away. So check out the event schedule, horizonsunlimited.com slash events. Plan your next trip around where there's going to be a Horizons Unlimited event. Great way to meet a lot of people and get local knowledge. Grant, why is it that no one allows motorcycles to ride in a game park? Um, because motorcyclists are known as meals on wheels. So why would I want to come and ride in a game park if I'm going to because be... Because this one's, this on one's safe. <laughs> well, the, the animals don't eat humans in this one. No, they don't. No, oh, it's not a problem. That's pretty cool. You can't There's nothing that. that's going to eat you in there. Ah, okay. <laughs> Very special. <laughs> Very carefully just chosen. Just riding skills. See how good you Yes, how fast you can go. So you Ken, take... how, how well can you run when a, when a lion's chasing you? Hmm. Or how well or can a you cheetah ride? works yet. When yeah. it's chasing you, right? Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, everyone. It's been great. And that wraps up this one for September ARR Raw. Fantastic. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Cheers. this month's ARR Raw and thank you to my co-host Sam Manicom starting with Sam Manicom he lives in the UK he's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world his website sam-manicom.com Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia they also publish their own books on motorcycle travel you can buy them wherever you get ebooks at their website uh, or from their website rather aussiesoverland.com.au Graham Field lives in Bulgaria he's the author of audiobooks and written books that chronicle his journeys at grahamfield.co.uk and of course Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited which is the hub literally for our adventure motorcycling community Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers from around the world that connect you with other travelers they also put on the hub meets around the world you can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website horizonsunlimited.com Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com. 